Hi, listeners. I want to tell you about a cause that I'm involved with at Heritage Radio Network. HRN is celebrating its 15th year, and to celebrate, we're deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hey, folks, I am super excited to tell you a bit about today's new sponsor, Music Masters Collective. They're a nonprofit organization that produces unique music events, providing opportunities for fans and artists to meet and collaborate in an inspired and creative atmosphere. Every week, MMC hosts different events, all with the opportunity to learn from world-class musicians like Bill Frizzell, Kurt Rosenwinkel, Julian Lodge, Mark Rabot, Wayne Krantz, O'Teal Burbridge, the Milk Carton Kids, and so many more. At an event like Alternative Guitar Summit Camp happening this August, you can expect in-depth workshops with guitar masters, once-in-a-lifetime performances, the opportunity to play alongside your favorite musicians, and a lot of fun. You'll leave this event packed full of wisdom and with a whole community of musicians to create with. This all-inclusive week in the Catskills Mountains of upstate New York is guaranteed to be magical. Scholarships are available. Spots are extremely limited. So visit www.alternativeguitarsummitcamp.com moods to learn more. Moods and Modes is presented by Osiris Media and made possible thanks to our Patreon community. To support the podcast directly, go to patreon.com slash Alex Skolnick. From Brooklyn, New York, this is Moods and Modes. I'm your host, Alex Skolnick. I'm probably best known as a professional guitarist. I'm also a writer, a photographer, and someone who occasionally gets told to keep his opinions to himself on Twitter. This podcast will involve music and guitar, but it may take us to some unexpected places as well. So, thank you for joining me, and let's do this. and Modes, episode 14. This is Alex Skolnick. And the music you're hearing, well, you should know what that is. Even if you weren't around in 1976, which is when this came out, I was around, I was very young at the time, but it doesn't matter. This is an album that is such a landmark 
beyond the artist, it is a landmark of the time period from the mid to late 70s. You think of Star Wars, the Carter administration, Happy Days, Saturday Night Fever, and of course, Frampton Comes Alive. So here's something I'm sure you've heard more than once in your podcast listening adventures. Quote, we have a very special episode for you today. Unquote. That is not something you'll hear often on this show. Not because the episodes aren't special. I think they're all special, and I'm very proud of them, if I may say. And your feedback seems to justify that, which I'm grateful for. All that said, I think it's safe to say we have a very special episode for you today. Now, the story of Peter Frampton is already more than episode-worthy for several reasons. One is that I feel the quality of his guitar playing, his fine guitar playing, tends to get overlooked. And there are several factors to that, which I'll get into. But the main one being that he became this larger-than-life figure. His story is very Homeric, in a sense. It's like the Odyssey or the novel Siddhartha by Herman Hesse, in which an individual finds himself ascended to the highest planes of influence, power, and fortune, and then falls just as quickly to a place lower than he was before, but then takes the lessons from that experience, finds a new, healthier plane of existence full of redemption and meaning. All of this is well captured in the pages of Do You Feel Like I Do? A Memoir, by Peter Frampton, which just came out last year, 2020. He's also got a wonderful new instrumental album out. It's all about the guitar, and it's called Frampton Forgets the Words. So I've been enjoying his new music. I've been enjoying revisiting the classics, but also checking out Peter Frampton and other bands in situations that I wasn't aware of, or I was aware of, but I just wasn't familiar with the music. I've been doing a lot of Frampton listening. I read his book, Practically Cover to Cover, which is great. All of which is to say, I, I don't need any help doing a Peter Frampton episode. I am all set. However, I'm willing to accept help from anybody who may know more about Peter Frampton than I do. And as it turns out, there is a foremost expert on all things Peter Frampton, and he has agreed to come on the podcast. I am talking about, yes, Peter Frampton. <laughs> I will explain how this came together, or it will come up. If you can't tell, I am still over the moon about this. And I don't want to talk too much longer because we had such a great conversation. There's so much to share. And I'm going to try to do little segues here and there, but we'll see because uh, we just had the best talk. So without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to Moods and Modes, the one, the only, Mr. Peter Frampton. Thanks for doing this. This is really, really cool. Great to meet you. It's nice to meet you, too. I feel like I know you so well. I, just, I finished your book last night. 
Oh, well, thanks. And I, uh, we tweet all the time, so. Yes. Uh, we we kind of know each other already. We are Twitter friends. We are, yes. It's a horrible word, but okay, let's tweet. Yeah, yeah. It's, <laughs> it's great to find like minds on, on Twitter, too, even like unrelated to music. Oh, absolutely. Yes. I, I, yes, I'm obsessive compulsive, I guess. With that. <laughs> it's a, such a great thing though. It brought us together. Yeah, uh, it did actually. Met yeah. some other folks. But then, then you did that solo. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Was it Wes? So Wes's solo, right? No, that was, was uh, Benson, George, George Benson. Benson. Yeah. That freaked me out. That was, you play so fast. I couldn't see your fingers move. <laughs> that was a tough one. But yeah, you. Uh, I, I was so thrilled when you uh, caught that, and you. Yeah, that inspired me to learn the whole thing because I had just done a couple choruses. Oh, I see. Yeah. <laughs> and then I thought, okay, well, if Peter likes this, I, I need to go back and. Yeah, George. Early George is just as good as late George. You know, it doesn't matter when you listen to him. What period? He's just superb. All right, I'm jumping in for a quick extracurricular narrative segment. I'm going to try to keep these short, famous last words. I think it should be self-explanatory how this came about, but I want to elaborate on it just a little bit. So not everything about Twitter is bad. Yes, it can be a cesspool, but it can also lead to these really cool connections. So thank you, Jack Dorsey. And Peter and I have some mutual Twitter friends. Some of them are mostly known in musician circles. Others are quite well-known. Regardless, Peter had become aware of a video clip I had shared online. A mutual favorite guitarist of ours, George Benson, whose solo I transcribed, a very early George Benson solo called The Cooker. Here's a little bit of that. Okay, so that's from the clip of me playing along with George. I think I had only gotten it that far in the first clip I'd posted. So this was earlier in the year. Peter had reached out. We had this really nice back and forth about George Benson, which inspired me to go ahead and learn the whole thing, <laughs> as I explained to him. But there was another motivation for taking on this challenge, which is sharing this side of George Benson, because not that many people are aware of it. People know the pop star side of him. But, but Peter is a real fan, knows all the early George Benson stuff, and we talk about that here. A lot of people don't know that either. You know, I think he's so known for, you know, his singer, pop star side, which is wonderful. Which is great. No, he's got a great voice, and he's obviously he had huge hits um, with uh, vocals. Um, and but, I mean, there's uh, someone who, when he was 16 years old was playing with Jack McDuff, you know, the Jack right. McDuff trio. And and uh, he freaked me out. With, and I didn't realize he was that young at the time. Yeah. And then I got, was it the Uptown George Benson right after he left there? And yeah, I got like a stack of his albums. So uh, it goes in one ear and out the other, but you know, some of it gets to the fingers. Oh, of course, <laughs> of course. Well, I can, I can hear it, you know, um, going back and, Revisiting a lot of your stuff through the years, you know, you you have this extra side. You know, there's there's these extended harmonies that the jazz players do that you don't hear as much in like you know as much as I love Peter Green and Clapton and all the blues breaker stuff, and that's incredible. You you kind of set yourself apart 
right, by adding ninths and these extra. But it was hard to it was hard to not. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, obviously, I've li- I listened to them, and I love all the people you mentioned, uh, and Mick Taylor as well. Um, oh yeah, there's so many out yeah. there. So, but but I mean, when I first heard um, Blues Breakers, well, I'd already seen Eric play with um, with the Blues Breakers before that album came out. I wasn't supposed to because I was too young, but mm-hmm. I did, and it just you know the jaw dropped, you know, because it's such a seductive. Yeah style mm-hmm. he took he mm-hmm. took american blues listened to it copied it and then because he's not that person uh he isn't bb king and he isn't you know whatever it sounded like him you know so it's he had his own slant on it i've i've wanted to do this for a long time and right after i started we lost peter green and it was perfect opportunity to just really take a deep dive into his his work oh and, man it's just the early Fleetwood Mac I mean is uh you know the alternate takes and everything it's just and you hear him talking you know between yeah. takes and no Mick don't do that use this whatever it's just so cool you're like a fly on the wall listening to this stuff go down and it was just in the UK at that time it was groundbreaking stuff you know yeah we were now hearing you don't hear Chicago or, or, or wherever blues on the BBC. <laughs> right, right. So we were starved of, of good uh, ethnic American music, blues and jazz. You had to really search for it. And that's, that's why um, I think the Beatles mentioned it, that they lived up in Liverpool where these chips would come in from New York and the uh-huh. sailors would, uh, merchant sailors, would bring back like arms full of American blues and soul and whatever oh, and Motown yes. or whatever it was at the time. And that's how it's more word of mouth, more like it is now, I guess. That was how it caught on. Yeah. 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 And I know for the original Fleetwood Mac with Peter, they did that concert in Chicago. There's a great album of that, or actually it's in the studio, but it's yeah with all those greats. Oh, yeah. I know. I know. It's uh it's fantastic. I had no idea you were like right there for all that stuff. I mean, you were getting picked up by Bill Wyman with your parents' permission <laughs> to to go make recordings and um, you know cross paths with all these people early on. I didn't know Bowie was a schoolmate, which is an incredible story. I, I was going to go to the same school, but this was the year before. But my father taught there. My dad was his art teacher. Yeah, that's amazing. For yeah. three, nearly four years. Oh. And um, so we went on a Saturday. They were having a charity fate, we call them, garden fate, to raise money for, you know, erasers and uh, pencils and whatever they were raising money for for the school. And um, on the steps is where I saw, first saw the Conrads, mm-hmm. which was Dave on sax. Um, right. And uh, so they would do instrumentals. And he would be this like the Dwayne Eddy, he would be the sax. And then and then he would, you know, do Elvis or, you know, Little Richard, probably uh, more Little Richard. Um, and I just looked at the the steps of the, the entrance of the school as we were walking. And I said, Dad, who's that guy on the end? Uh, David, obviously. And, and he goes, oh, 
that's Jones. He's very musical and he's also very creative artistically too. So, you know, uh, my, my dad realized that he was... That he had potential. Yeah, yeah, that him and George Underwood, who did Siggy's cover, they were they were best friends till David. We lost David, and he's still a great friend of mine. Oh yeah, yeah. In I fact, think he, he would have painted that yeah. painting right there. Oh, I can't even point backwards. I see it. I see it. Yeah, George Underwood's. Oh wow. So, um, I love George. He's a dear friend. And allow me to jump in for a moment. The painting he's describing on his wall is by George Underwood. It appears to be a tiny island in the sea. And on top of it is what looks like either some type of rock formation or a compressed castle or both. It's kind of hard to tell. Uh, But it's clearly George Underwood. And even if that name doesn't ring a bell... You've seen his work on too many sci-fi, horror, and fantasy novels to miss, as well as album covers by T-Rex, Mott the Hoople, and David Bowie, most famously Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars. I also want to elaborate just a bit on the story Peter's telling about his classmate David. And uh, this is an incredible story. So at that time, Peter's father is the art teacher at Bromley Technical High School in the UK. And if I have this right, uh, David is a year or two ahead of Peter, and uh, he's one of these rare students that just comes along once in a lifetime, if that, with eighth degree black belt level creativity. And it just seems certain that he's going to make a mark in installations or exhibitions or some other art form. But by the way, he plays a bit of music too. And as we all know, he's just as good at music (laughs) and um, multiple instruments and songwriting. And he'll go on to combine that with his art and become this true giant. But he'll always uh, have this close familial relationship with both Peter's father and Peter. And despite, or perhaps because of that, the two do not go on to make music together. Sure, they both go on to have a big impact in music in different ways, but it's kept separate from their relationship. They remain close, like family, but never share the stage together. That will change in a big way in the late 1980s. We'll get into that later in the episode. For now, let's get back to the story of the three schoolyard mates who would become lifelong friends and all hugely influential. George Underwood, Peter Frampton, and David Jones. Oh yeah, this is the mid-60s, so there was a band called The Monkees Out. You may have seen their TV show, which had a musician named David Jones. So this David Jones would go on to change his name to David Bowie. So yeah, so we were the the three... uh compadres you know at school yeah yeah i did you know back then that you know all you guys in a way became these giants but he yeah he really blossomed i think he would have been a hit in the art world absolutely you can really see it in his live clips and you know, yeah yeah no i mean he had the whole he had the full monty he had yeah. not only the creative to write songs and the great voice and and to play any instrument he wanted to, you know. But he had the other side, which was the art, that he was so into history of art and fine art, everything. And that's where him and my dad were, you know, my dad and him were, were, were and Dave were, were friends up until mm-hmm. dad passed. And, and David was the first person to call the house when we lost dad. So it was a close relationship. Uh, it was probably, yeah, he was probably even closer to my dad than he was to me. 
at the Brooklyn Museum. They they had the the exhibition with Bowie, and uh, they had his um, one of his bookcases with his bookshelf. I realized, wow, he's got great taste in books. Man, that mm-hmm. guy he must have read like two or three books a day. So yeah, he was on a roll. Yeah, the, the Idiot by Dostoevsky—that's one of my favorites too. Yeah, yeah, and, and um, um, Faust and everything. So, uh, which I'm rereading now, Faust. Oh, excellent, excellent. Yeah, so that because that was the for Reckoner. That's the first track that came out from Frampton Forgets the Words, which I do occasionally. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't want to look, go back and look at the lyrics for mm-hmm. Reckoner because um, I wanted it to be our own slant um, and make a, a video with the storyline. Mm-hmm. And then I, I saw all these chat groups saying that, oh, well, he was definitely, it was definitely Faust. He was reading Faust at the time he wrote Reckoner. So I thought, well, okay, that's the, uh, you know, sell your soul to the devil thing. So I thought that would be a great story to to do in our own way. So that's, it's not, I'm sure it's nothing to do with what Tom York had in mind, but <laughs> it was, I, I wanted to do a tribute and do it our way. So uh, yeah, I hope they like it. Yeah, I think the new stuff is really great, by the way. I, I heard your um, Roxy Music song. Oh, Avalon, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I love that one. That one's yeah. great. Well, Beautiful. I love their version is, is pretty much a perfect record, the whole album, you know. Was that the guitar you played it on? That uh, red uh, 335 behind you? That is it. Yeah. Yeah. That's very cool. <laughs> That's the one. It's a 1959. That's beautiful. I just got this one. This is my first of Ooh. those types of guitars. This is um, a 347. Yeah. Oh, 347. Never heard of that. Yeah, they were kind of like hot rotted versions of the 330. They were limited. Oh wow! They stopped making them in like the late '80s, I believe. But, so what? Uh, what age is that? What year is that? Uh, I think this is like it's it's from from the mid '80s. I think okay. it's like a or like right. maybe early '80s. Gotcha. '81 or so. But um, right. yeah, I really I got those when I when I played this guitar. I said, oh, I, I get it now. Yeah, I have two different three three fives. One I play on stage. This one never leaves the house, though. Uh, Why well, goes to the studio and back? That's about it. Yeah, and, um, that's a sweet one. They're completely, completely different. In as much as this '64 I have is the Freddie Green. I'm sorry, Freddie King. I'm Freddie thinking King, about. Yeah. I'm thinking about um, big bands now. Um, <laughs> the rhythm player. Um, yeah, also. Yeah, good he. Um, it's got a brightness to it. Uh-huh. It's very bright. Uh, 335 compared to this one which is which is very mellow sounding you know yeah. and uh, if I had to if someone said we're taking you away in a white van and we're taking you to a, a desert island uh, and it's just going to be you one guitar one, guitar. one amp, what would you choose I said well it would be that one right? that would be that one oh amazing yeah yeah oh. maybe my Vox AC15 uh-huh. or my Princeton <laughs> nice nice yeah, I think for me, I don't know if you could see up on the wall, the blonde hollow body. Yeah, is that a 175? That is a an L5. Oh, it's an L5. Okay, all right. Yeah, that's from uh, 1976. Yeah. I think, I think that, that, that was the year you played Winterland. 76? Yeah. Yeah, uh, 75 is when we actually did the recording. 76 is when it okay. came out, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that's a 76 L5. That's what I did the Benson stuff on. 
Uh, yeah, I, that's right. I saw you playing that, yeah. And this is Alex jumping in. As long as we're on the subject of George Benson, I want to go on this little excursion. It'll take a few minutes. I think you'll see where I'm going with it. It is worth it. And I would have asked Peter about this, but I wasn't aware of it till after we spoke. So I want to bring up a 2019 interview with George Benson. He's on the cover of Jazz Times magazine. It is their special guitar issue. And he's interviewed by Marcus Miller, one of our great contemporary bassists who played for and produced Miles Davis on some of his electric jazz in the 80s, which is some great funky music. It brought Miles back after a dark, quiet period. But there was a critical backlash by purists who took serious issue with jazz artists who crossed over, expanded their sounds, reached different audiences, had bigger record sales. It had happened to Wes Montgomery, George Benson's hero. And a hero to many of us, it had happened to George, it had happened to Miles. So midway through this interview, Marcus Miller says to George Benson, you had incredible pop success. What you represented for us, George, and I think he means Miles Davis as well, was a jazz musician who wasn't going to limit himself by what other people think he should or shouldn't be doing. Now, I'm sure a lot of you are still with me. Some of you may be wondering, when is he going to get back to Peter Frampton? Well, lest you think I'm getting off track here, here is part of George Benson's answer to Marcus Miller in this Jazz Times cover story. And there's a bunch of quotes within, so I'm just going to quote the beginning of the answer, and I, I think it should be clear what's going on. Quote, I saw an article by Peter Frampton. I didn't know who he was. I'd never heard of him before, but all of a sudden he was big. Boom. So I picked up the article after people told me about it, and he said, I listened to George Benson's music. So I said, if he sells millions of albums and he's listening to me, let me check out what he's doing. So I check out his album and I said, wow, okay, he's got a wah-wah pedal in there and he's got some percussion. Let me try that. So I cut an album and they called it Bad Benson, unquote. So Marcus Miller says, wait, Peter Frampton was the inspiration for Bad Benson, unquote. George Benson's answer, quote, can you imagine that? Uh-huh. So I used percussion, and man, it was the first record that the company recognized sold over 100,000 albums, unquote. So what you're hearing in the background is a little bit of that album, Bad Benson. And just to let you know how much I love this album, it's part of my warm-up routine. Now, as great as his answer is, I'm wondering about the accuracy of his recollection. It was a long time ago, and I do not mean to question the great Mr. Benson, King George, if you will. But hear me out here. When Bad Benson came out, it was 1974. Peter Frampton's then current album was called Frampton's Camel, camel like animal in the desert. His career was growing. He was starting to catch up to the band he'd been in before, Humble Pie selling out large theaters, which is nothing to scoff at. But for him to reach the radar of the mighty Mr. Benson, and especially the way it's described, boom, he was everywhere. That sounds like the period of Frampton Comes Alive, which came out in 1976. So it seems like this may be where that connection is. I'm not sure. But take a listen to this little clip from Frampton Comes Alive. I'm sure you've heard it before. But don't hesitate Cause your love won't 
And that song has a slightly tropical feel, probably needs no introduction, one of Peter's biggest hits, Baby I Love Your Way, written on a trip to a Caribbean location, which he talks about in his book. Now let's check out this song. Uh, This was a big hit for George Benson, also very tropical, and it came out a year later. It's called Breezin'. Okay, so it's a little faster. It's got slightly different instrumentation, a much busier bass line, but there's a similar flavor. And I just think when you add up those factors and the time period, it seems likely that Frampton Comes Alive influenced George, especially on his follow-up to that record, which was a live record, Weekend in L.A., which is one of his most famous records, has the live version of On Broadway. Regardless... Isn't it cool to know that part of George's motivation to expand his sound and reach so many more people had to do with Peter? I had no idea. Now back to our regular scheduled programming in which Peter and I are talking guitars, and I'm telling him a bit of the story behind my favorite Gibson L5. And that was my incentive guitar. I told myself, I'm going to have to get my jazz guitar playing together or the guitar goes back. (laughs) Well, you definitely did. You're an amazing player. I have to say that. Kudos to you, man. I mean, it's tremendous. Oh, I really appreciate it. I was also inspired by that guitar because Wes plays one just like it on the cover of uh, Live at the Subo. Right, right. Which was in Berkeley, California, which is where I'm from. Oh, I see. I see. I figured you would be in L.A. right now, but you're in Brooklyn. Yeah. Yeah. I'm actually a transplant. (laughs) So I'm in. um, Yeah, I'm in Brooklyn. I'm just outside Manhattan. I came here in the late 90s. Oh, okay. Yeah. My story is very, very, very strange. I know most people do the opposite. Right. Yeah. I started in New York when I first moved to the U.S. in Westchester. I made uh, Mount Kisco elitist before the, the Clintons. Uh, yes. <laughs> Isn't that, are they in Chappaqua? Right, yeah. yeah. But they shop in Mount Kisco. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you were a trendsetter. Yes, exactly. Oh, yeah. I, I loved it up there. But yeah. So I, uh, yeah, I'm from Berkeley and um, I had an older brother. He's still around. He doesn't play anymore, but he played in high school. He was like seven years older. So he was, in high school bands when I was a little kid. And his, his favorite album was Frampton Comes Alive. And it was always the one that was like on display. Big part of my childhood was... So you were force-fed me. <laughs> yeah, your, your face <laughs> and the guitar. It's funny because in the book, you talk about the, um, the photo. Right. And the photographer getting some grief from his uh, instructor. Richard Aaron, yeah. I never realized that was out of focus. Yeah, well, it never bothered me. It just gave it a gave it a more dreamy kind of look. I didn't until yeah, I it, said it's it out of focus. I didn't realize. Then I looked. Oh yeah, I guess it is. But it it kind of makes it better in in a way. Oh yeah, yeah. It just adds to it. We've lost him now, unfortunately. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah, but uh, Richie was Richard was uh, he used to be Richie now. Then he became Richard, and. Um, just a lovely, lovely man. And uh, yeah, his his uh, photography teacher called him up and said, oh, no, he took it to him and he showed him the cover 
um, oh. Richard gave it to him and, and showed him the cover. He said, look, I've got my first album cover and it's like the biggest selling album ever. And, and the teacher goes, yeah, and it's out of focus. <laughs> <laughs> and this is just me again. Isn't that a funny story? As a uh, photographer myself, I can really appreciate that story. And I, I really had never noticed that it is slightly out of focus. But you, you wouldn't have it any other way. It's Frampton Comes Alive. What is a city without its music? The legacy of the New York Philharmonic is incredible. Nearly two centuries of history. That's a lot of music and a lot of stories. I was sitting on stage for the very first time thinking, I can't quite believe this is happening. Join me, Jamie Bernstein, as we explore the history of the New York Philharmonic. It's the NY Phil story made in New York, a podcast about a city, its people, and their orchestra. Listen wherever you get podcasts. This is Moods and Modes Comes Alive, episode 14. We're at the half hour point. This is where we normally take a quick break to do any housekeeping. So thank you for being here. I hope you're enjoying this conversation with Peter as much as I am. And thanks for putting up with the occasional sirens and other street noise. Normally, I just have a do-over when that happens. I've played some of the blooper clips at the end of episodes before. But not in this case, because I'm in conversation with this awesome guest. Peter's voice was done on Zoom, but it actually sounds good. I had help setting this up from Team Osiris. So thank you, guys. And I think it came out rather well. Uh, in other news, I got my first vaccine shot. Woohoo! Uh, I drove three and a half hours <laughs> upstate, one of the SUNY locations. Uh, that means State University of New York, for those of you not from the state. And I actually really enjoyed the drive, and I'm looking forward to my next one in three weeks. I felt a little tired, but otherwise no side effects and it was the Pfizer vaccine. I'm looking forward to being fully vaccinated and all of you being vaccinated as well so we can get back to living life as we remember it or close to it. One of my favorite venues, the Iridium, that's where my trio did the streaming event last month. I believe Peter has played special shows there as well. Uh, they just announced they're reopening in the fall, which is great news. We have our very first official show with the trio. That's confirmed for Thursday, September 29th. And I'm hearing there may be other shows after that, including with various projects I'm involved with. I don't want to speak too soon, but you'll be hearing more about it. Also, uh, previously I mentioned I'd been hard at work on a written article for a news journal. That came out on March 29th. It's titled, Shut Up and Play Your Guitar, with the subheading, A Celebrated Musician on the Responsibility of Artists in a Time of Political Turmoil. It was a great honor to be among such journalists and academics who write full-time on current socio and political events. I've been overwhelmed by the response to this, including uh, from writers I greatly respect and even an occasional celebrity. Would you believe Tom Arnold? Yes, that Tom Arnold shared the article on his Twitter page. I even heard privately from an A-list 1% musician that I will not name because to do so, that would become news. And I believe this person messaged me in private for a reason. Anyway, the journal is called New Lines Magazine, and it can be found by searching for New Lines, one word, and entering my name, or just look it up on my social media. Now let's get back to our chat with Peter. Oh, but first I would just want to say I could easily fill an entire episode uh, just with associations he's had. In fact, let me play a couple quick clips, then we'll get back to Peter. 
This is the first band he recorded professionally with back in the 60s. He's still in his teens, and this band appeared on these British pop television shows. The band was called The Herd. Check it out. It's not bad, right? The vocals remind me a little bit of early Genesis, you know, Phil Collins and Peter Gabriel, who had these very similar voices. It's a certain uh, British style of singing, and Peter sounds great doing that. He was kind of thrown into the vocalist role. He saw himself as a guitarist and a backup singer and occasional lead singer, but not a frontman. Yet the band found itself playing these British teen pop shows, and the target demographic was teenage girls. The band was handled by more experienced, business-minded managers who took one look at Peter, who, let's face it, was young and cute, and said, you're the lead singer, get up to the microphone. This represented the beginning of an Achilles heel, a tug-of-war between being the photogenic frontman and the best guitarist musician he could be. In many ways, the pressure between these competing factions would come to define his career, especially as he reached superstar status. Before then, however, and probably as a reaction to his experience in The Herd, he would join a band in which his primary role was the guitarist and the frontman role was left to somebody else. That frontman was Steve Marriott and the name of that band was Humble Pie and it was really hard rocking. Let's check out a little bit. That's some serious, kick-ass, heavy rock, right? I confess I missed that. I don't know how. When I was into groups like Kiss and Blue Oyster Cult and UFO, this would have been right up my alley. It's from an album called Humble Pie, Rockin' the Fillmar. So it was after Humble Pie that Peter embarked upon his solo career and did several albums before his live album that everybody knew about. So it was easy to think he came out of nowhere and was this overnight success, but he'd been at it for years. Let's get back to our conversation. I finished the book last night, and it was, uh, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's an incredible story. I related to some of it. So, I, you know, I've never experienced tabloid celebrity. Yeah, you're in the Daily Mail and page six of the New York Post and everybody on the street knows who you are. Yeah, that 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 was... Um, That's not easy to handle, especially at that age. No, you do finally get used to it, but it's not... Um, when it first happens, it seems that it's overnight, but it really isn't, obviously. It's happened over a, a long period, but the attention that that comes alive got in 76 and, you know, for the next few years when it was, my manager said, you're new big, <laughs> it will calm down. You'll right. just be, you know, mm -hmm. but right now everybody wants a piece of right. it. And um, he was right, you know, and um, it was scary actually uh, to start. And, and I'm glad that it was then and not now. Because yeah. now would be, instead of 15 photographers, it would be yeah. like a thousand, you know, it, it's gone berserk now. So yeah. with all, and all the 
instant live. And yeah, I'm sure there were a few things I did back then that if I did them today, they'd be on YouTube <laughs> on the, off, off someone's iPhone. So I'm I'm pretty happy about that. They'd, they'd, they'd be calling for cancellation. <laughs> <laughs> Cancel Frampton. <laughs> I have been carried out of clubs, you know what I mean? So I went through my 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 uh, over-the-top period. So it's, it's yeah. fun to keep uh, keep a level head, especially when you're 26, you know. Yeah, absolutely. I hadn't realized you were so young at that point, you know. Yeah, yeah. Was, Being a uh, kid remembering that record. And I, I look at it now, I'm like, oh, my God, that is incredibly young. I have no idea how I would have handled that. So no, it's it was it was uh, it was a journey. <laughs> yeah. Well, I love how you make the um, the there's a real uh, arc to the story. Yes. And you sort of find yourself after that. There's like a sense of getting lost, but then soul searching. And just around the same time you find yourself, the same guitar from that record cover shows up. And what what a perfect metaphor for. Uh, yeah, it, it, I didn't think about that at the time when it came back, but when I was writing the book, it's, you know, and we'd had more time gone by since I got it back. And it definitely seemed like, you know, it was um, it was my talisman, my good talisman that, that um, when it was gone, so was my career. <laughs> but then it came back. But I I'd sort of built my, myself back, which was um, took a long time. Um, but to rid myself of the, the pop side of, of people's perception. And this ties into what we were speaking about earlier, the tug of war between industry pressure to play more of the role of light rock, heartthrob, pop singer, frontman versus his true calling as guitarist, songwriter, rocker. And in the aftermath of Frampton Comes Alive, everything from being tricked into posing shirtless for a magazine, which he didn't want to do, to being forced to follow up the album, going into the studio before he was ready, with a lighter sound and heartthrob image that he just wasn't feeling. Now, the guitar we're talking about is the Black Les Paul that he used on Frampton Comes Alive. He's photographed with it on the cover. That precious guitar went down in a fiery crash on a cargo plane in Venezuela. Now, I'm not going to go into too much detail about this. There's plenty of information out there. There's been stories written in plenty of guitar magazines. You can look it up. There's even a segment on a morning network television program. So long story short, the guitar was thought to be gone forever. It, decades later, it was returned to him. And it's used as a very effective metaphor in his book, a symbol of survival, crawling out of the ashes. Peter's path to redemption really begins in the mid-1980s. It's approximately a decade after the fire of Frampton Comes Alive, which caused him to shine brighter than the sun, but which in turn left him charred and smoldering. He's the musical equivalent of a Hollywood actor whose series has been canceled and no agents or studios are returning his calls. And in fairness, he's so symbolic of the 70s. It is a very difficult feat to make a transition from being an icon of the 1970s into the 1980s. Very few have done it. However, one person has done it incredibly successfully, no doubt due to his talent as an artist for he lived his life like a work of art. He was about to embark upon his biggest tour of his career, one of the biggest tours in history. 
and recognizing that one of his oldest, dearest friends was having a hard time in his own career, like an albino angel reached out his hand and said, come with me, I got you. The David Bowie Glass Spider Stadium Tour, including on guitar, Peter Frampton. David, um, Dave, David Bowie um, was instrumental uh, in in inviting me to play on his album and then to do the Glass Spider tour, which he which knew incredible. me as a guitar player um, for years. He, he knew I wasn't necessarily a front man. You know, he he saw me as the guitar player, and that's my fallback default wonderful position is to have a great singer out there and to play guitar i love that position mm -hmm. and um so david took me around the world and in these huge venues stadiums and, and arenas and reintroduced me as the guitar player and he knew what he was doing and i didn't understand it until it started to happen that my credibility started coming back you know and people wow. started That's talking about me as a guitar player again i'm not a shredder never have been but but I have a style that's, uh, that, you know, I developed throughout. I think my style developed in Humble Pie because yeah. it forced, forced me to fuse blues, rock, and jazz together. There's some ripping moments, though, <laughs> I got to say. I watched the concert. So one of the great things about now is, you know, I can read a book like yours and reference all the stuff. Yeah, on YouTube. So of course, the, the whole Glass Spider show, one of them is, is on there. Oh, yes, yes. But, yeah, the stuff you're playing and uh, Loving the Alien. That was my favorite. And that, that was the was one he gave me. The, great moment. Okay, Pete, off you go. <laughs> and um, that was my party piece each night. And that is, in fact, the next song that's coming out uh, from the new album. So oh, I had cool. to do it. Oh, I'm so glad. <laughs> I'm so glad. Yeah, I just thought you sound so good on that. And I'm like, Well, thank you. You. And you had a lot, you had a big chore on that because, you know, David, you forget how many great guitar players he had over the years, you know, you, and you're, so you're playing stuff by Adrian Blue. Robert uh, Fripp. Yeah. Robert Fripp, Adrian Blue, uh, Mick Ronson. Yeah. Stevie Ray Vaughan. Stevie Ray Vaughan. Great job on, on the Let's Dance stuff too. It, it was nice to hear that extended too. Cause. Right. You know, Stevie's got these little fills here and there, but you really kind of expanded upon that yeah. well the thing i'm not him i couldn't be him because even if i learned every lick note for note i would never have the same feel as him so or any of those guitar players so i would learn the part but yeah. then i would 
expand on it a little bit and just put a bit of me in there, you know, because I'm a stylist and um, when I play something, it comes out and it sounds like me. I can't help it. Yeah. <laughs> even, even without the talk box. You know, right. you have a very distinct style. And it's nice to hear so much you're playing out, outside of that, as cool as that is. Yeah, it, it's just that that was my gadget, you know, my uh, <laughs> that was my gimmick gadget that I just stumbled upon. OK, so this gets really interesting before we get deep into the thick of it, talking talk boxes. Just for anybody who's wondering, that's part of Peter's signature sound. Of course, the 13-minute extended version of Do You Feel Like We Do on Frampton Comes Alive has a long improvised talk box solo, which is really excellent, by the way. It's got some great lines. So I've always wondered where that came from, and it originated with a device called the Sonifox, which is a special effect, a little bit like a telephone, except it robotified the voice, and it was used often in radio jingles of the 1960s, particularly like radio IDs. Peter talks about it in his book, hearing it on Radio Luxembourg. And I couldn't find the ID for that online, but I did find one from a radio station in Chicago. Check it out. Now, a few musicians started using this sound, including Stevie Wonder. But the way Peter discovers it, is uh, the pedal steel player Pete Drake, who's one of the most recorded musicians in Nashville during the 60s. He's on all types of country records. He's on Dylan's Nashville Skyline. And he altered the device, so it more closely resembled the talk box as we know it. And this gets on Peter's radar when Pete Drake is flown to London to record on George Harrison's landmark solo album, All Things Must Pass in which Peter found himself playing guitar on rather unexpectedly. For that, I'd like to play a short clip from another recent appearance of Peter's in which he tells the story to somebody I consider a far superior interviewer to me. Before Frampton Comes Alive becomes this massive, one of the biggest hits of all time in rock history, you befriend George Harrison. Mm -hmm. Now, a guy with your kind of guitar chops and experience and singing and everything, are you nervous when George calls you up and says, I need, I'm, I'm leaving the Beatles and I need, no. <laughs> like, like, I need you? Yeah. Um, like, well, how does that work? The, the first time that I met him, a fr uh, uh, his best friend and assistant, Terry Doran, he, he, we were in Wardour Street in London, and that's uh, the studio is just around the corner, Trident. And um, we were in the pub, and he said, do you want to come and meet George? And I said, George who? Right. Yeah. <laughs> See, those guys all call themselves, like, they think you know who they are. Yeah. It's like, well, wait, George. Yeah, but George. Yeah, he had some he had some code name for him as well. But uh, do you want to come meet Harry? You know, so, <laughs> <laughs> so I walk in the studio, and there's George standing behind the console. And he looked at me, and he goes, hello, Pete. You know, and I, I kind of looked behind myself. I said, 
is there another Pete here? <laughs> How and did I'm, he know you so well? Was he from Humble Pie? From Humble Pie, and he requested you because he had to put together musicians for this thing he was well, doing. He, we, we didn't know we were going to meet that day, and he just said, "Look, I'm producing my first album for the Apple label, the Beatles Apple right. label." So I walked down, and it's the who's who of players. Who's you know? in there? Ringo and Klaus Vorman, Nicky Hopkins. Oh my God! All these like top top guys, and. Uh, Chris Bedding, probably. That's exciting, right? Uh, Yes, I was nervous as hell. And then George just hands me his Les Paul, the famous one. Not that he's not famous. <laughs> right. But that's his guitar. <laughs> but it's it's very, there's a storied past to it. So, and I, I saw so I And you start, had no idea you were going there to play. You were no. just going to meet George, you, Harry. Yeah, exactly. They didn't give you a code name? No, no. like, hey, yet. where's my code name? <laughs> not yet. Hey, kid, get over here. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. You're, just, you're just Peter Frampton. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Howard. Back to our time with Peter Frampton. You know, I, I heard the sound on this radio station in England that was actually Luxembourg. in Luxembourg. Radio Luxembourg, yeah. Right? And, and their call sign was 208. Fabulous 208. But they used another thing similar to a talk box, but it was put on the throat. A sonovox. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. Um, and and they did. Yeah. yeah. A lot of American radio stations use the same thing. Yeah, I looked it up. Yeah, Sonobox. I can't always forget that. So I always wonder, what the hell is that? Fast forward to Stevie uh, Stevie Wonder's playing Music of My Mind. Yeah. I bought that album. Second one he played all the instruments on. Uh-huh. And there's that sound again, and he's using it as like background vocals, and yeah. in other words, and all, but with the synth. And I thought, there it is again. That's it. So then I go, the next thing is, I'm in this Abbey Road, studios right for all things must pass that's an incredible album and and george had asked me to come and do that after i played on doris troy's record and like the third day he said we've got you know peter drake's coming in from uh from nashville he's gonna do some pedal steel (laughs) sorry (laughs) this is me stopping the tape (laughs) i don't know how i didn't notice that before um between here and on howard Boy, uh, Peter does a really good George. So I said, oh, fantastic. Huh. So he's like the A-team guy. You know, he's on every, yeah. all of your favorite 60s country records. Right, That's right. Big Drake, basically. Nashville Skyline by Dylan. Yeah. Absolutely. And so in a slow moment, that's when he, he said, Peter, he said, you want to hear something? I said, oh, I'd love to. He said, reaches in his bag, he puts this black, metal box on the edge of his pedal steel, plugs in stuff, and I didn't know what he was doing. Then this little tiny chew put it in his mouth, and the pedal steel starts singing to me. And you can actually go on YouTube and see- Yeah, I heard it. <laughs> the audio yeah. of, of me and George. I'm laughing, and he's talking and laughing. It's amazing. I'm just a guitar. <laughs> I'm just a guitar. Oh, 
we'll just use that bit and then all oh, the band will come in and then we'll <laughs> use that bit again where they go out to link the next verse. I can't do it with this thing. Oh. That was it. There it is. Eureka moment. There, It's right in front of me. Oh, man, that was and, and everyone was, you know, you can't help. And so when I finally I asked him, if, where did he get that? And he said, I made it myself. I said, oh, dear. He's, and then he lent that that one. His wife actually lent it to Joe Walsh, that exact one. Mm-hmm. And Joe Walsh used that on Rocky Mountain Way. And then Joe said to um, Bob Heil, Heil Sound, who yep. Humble Pie had used, I'd used, knew, know Bob for years, wonderful man. And um, he's now into microphones. And um, Joe said to, to Bob, hey, Bob, you got to make me one that's louder. So that's how the... the, the that's how it's <laughs> just like I've met him. That's just like him. Yeah, that's incredible. I have to hand it to you for hanging in there with that thing. So yeah, I mentioned um, my work with Trans-Siberian Orchestra. Every time we would play New York, we would have a special guest uh, Joe was a special guest one time. Right. Um, and another time we had um, Steven Tyler. Oh, so, wow. Yeah, we would do Madison Square Garden and we'd have, we had Roger, we had Roger Daltrey one year. Um, but with Steven, we did uh, one of the songs was Sweet Emotion. Oh, right. And I had to do the part. They brought me a talk box. I'd never used one before. And it's like going to the dentist. <laughs> <laughs> you got this thing in your mouth. You're biting down. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm playing the word. And I was just thinking, yeah, wow. How did Peter Frampton do this? Like, you make it look so easy. It's but it's it's not that easy to keep that thing in your mouth and no, it's not. Vib- your teeth vibrate. <laughs> yeah, no, I um, I always say, well, you know, I. This is my third set of dentures, so since that, but it's not, no. <laughs> but no, it's not that bad. And I have a separate amp for it now in the in the Comes Alive album. It's uh, literally in line with my cab, my amp and my cab. Okay. So it's 100 watt Marshall driving it. Yeah, so now I can actually turn it down a little bit <laughs> and, yeah. and overdrive it a bit more so that it's it's more palatable. <laughs> if that's the correct word you use oh, that's in the good. Box. <laughs> it's just such a great thing you do very creative stuff with it i mean it's very musical well thanks it's, I, it's, I it's only because of stevie wonder and jeff beck and who used it on the beatles number she, uh, she's a woman right oh and uh yeah and uh blow by blow that's blow right. by blow, yeah and um watching pete drake do that yeah so i i yeah. locked myself away for about every day for a about 10 days, two weeks, and I managed to, I didn't want to just use it as a sound. Sure. I wanted to be able to speak with it like Stevie, because I, uh-huh. when, I, when I heard Stevie talking with it, I thought, this can be another voice that can mm. communicate with the audience. And so the first night, I got one in probably 73, mm-hmm. 74, and uh, we hadn't recorded with it yet, and um, I just uh, said, well, we'll use it when we take it down at the end of Do You Feel, instead of doing just a, a build-up guitar solo again to the end, why don't I throw the talk box in there? And then the first night I used it, 
is when I felt like the whole audience moved about 24 inches closer to us. Uh-huh. <laughs> as soon as I went, and then they, and everyone's screaming and shouting and what the hell's that? And, <laughs> uh-huh. and then I would start talking to them and they went nuts. Isn't that amazing? The tale of the talk box. Now we get into a slightly more serious topic, that of uh, a recent health condition that has come up for Peter. Um, He's got a great attitude about it, and he's become a really good advocate for um, sufferers of this condition, which is relatively rare. It's called IBM, and uh, he will talk about it right now. Uh, Yes. Well, sorry to hear hear that. It's really... Yeah, it's it's IBM I have. It's in inclusion body myositis. And um, the first time I noticed anything, I went to um, to the West Coast. My son was living there and Julian and uh, he was in his teens then. And, and I thought uh, maybe maybe 20 at that point. And I I just uh, said, let's go for a hike. So we went yeah. for a hike and he just ran up the hill. And I thought, wow. Uh, my legs aren't working as well as they should here. I don't think I'm losing some strength. And I just said, like everybody does who has it, when it first uh, starts to happen, I'm getting old. But it had nothing to do with that, apparently. No, right. no. Yeah. Um, and so then I started um, falling on stage. Um, that was humiliating. And and uh, twice in three weeks I did it. First time we were all laughing and saying, right. He's fallen and he can't get up, you know, one of those. And it was funny. I was laughing too. And then second time happened. Then we had a break and uh, I went to see my doctor. He took me to, uh, sent me to a urologist. Mm -hmm. And that's when I I got diagnosed initially. And I said, well, what do I do? And he said, well, you should go to Johns Hopkins in Baltimore because they have a whole clinic there. Mm -hmm. It's one of the biggest places in the world. So I have an incredible team. Basically, what it is, um, it's an autoimmune disease that your body tells itself to destroy uh, certain muscles right, right, right. and turn them into fat. It's my quads, mm. my lower leg muscles, and my arms and hands. So that's that's pretty scary for a guitar player. Yeah, absolutely. It's just now starting to affect uh, my hands a little bit more than I would like. Yeah. Um, but um, I don't know. It's it's kind of making me play more, even more soulful, I feel, you know. I was going to say, yeah, it seems like you're tapping into some new stuff, some new yeah, styles. It's it might not be, the dexterity might not, I mean, the, the new album was done two years ago, uh-huh. nearly two years ago. When I came off that tour after being diagnosed, I said to the band, let's go in the studio and yeah. let's not come out until we've done about three or four albums because yeah. I don't know how long I've got. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, um, so we did. And um, mm-hmm. this was done 2019. Uh-huh. Uh, Framed forgets the words, the in- new instrumental record. 2019 yeah. in the uh, first couple of months before okay. we went on tour for the finale tour, which was started in May that year. Yeah, well, you, yes, you don't have to worry about touring now because uh, now nobody's touring. I, I said, I know I said I might not be touring again, but I didn't mean everybody had to stop. But obviously it's, we, we have to. I feel 
very bad for people starting out. Uh, the young, yes, that's who I feel bad for. Yeah, um, me too. Oh. Because it's supposed to be a time where you live dangerously, mm-hmm. and you yeah. think you're infallible, and you pretty much are. But right now, if you act like that, then you could get very, very sick. And yeah, those are rites of passage. To not have that is unimaginable. It, it really is. My my son Julian has has got a great band. They haven't played together in ages, obviously, yes. and uh, he's gone on to do some other stuff in the meantime, possibly getting a a, um, a writer's deal um, because he's a very prolific writer, great singer, player. Oh, so um, yeah, it's yeah. I, I see with him how frustrating it is, you know. Just I, I liked how you the, your whole perspective about uh, not holding grudges. Was, was really great because you've kind of been through hell with like some of the same people that were blessings were curses. But the perspective is good because that wouldn't have happened without them at the same time. Exactly. But what happens is it was like almost like I didn't change, but they all changed. Everybody had their own agenda and it was but I was the golden egg or yeah. the golden goose who laid the, the golden eggs and they just wanted more eggs. I, I didn't uh, didn't have much many more eggs left at that time. Well, thank you, Peter. All right, Alex. Can't, can't wait to meet in person someday. And, and I, I, I have it on good authority that you don't need to practice anymore. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Just I, once, a, once a day. Okay, that's I'm, all. All right, okay. once a week you can. No. No, no don't practice. Don't practice. No, it's just like you say in the book, you know, you could keep learning. Always, right. always, always. Always learning. Yeah, even the guys I, I've studied with, like the heavy jazz guys, and they're, they're still taking lessons. So Exactly, because, you know, if, if you think you're the bee's knees and there's no end to what I just said, which is ridiculous, and you say, I don't need to practice yeah. or learn some a new solo by somebody else, you know, when you reach the point where you don't think you need that, you're over and done with. That's oh, it. yeah. That's when you start needing to practice the most. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. All right. Good advice to end on. All right, man. Take care of yourself. So good. You too, Alex. Thanks again, Peter. You're welcome. Bye for now. Woo! (laughs) Did this really happen? Peter Frampton, everybody. The Peter Frampton. The phrase, never meet your heroes, does not always apply. Certainly not in this case. What a great guy, great guitarist, great artist overall. And while the word legend tends to get tossed around quite a bit, I think it gets overused. In this case, I think it's safe to use that word in a voice like Jack Black in Tenacious D. Legend. Moods and Modes is presented by Osiris Media, hosted and produced by yours truly, Alex Skolnick. Osiris Production by Kirsten Cluthy and Brad Stratton. Opening theme by yours truly and the music you're hearing now by the Alex Skolnick Trio with Matt Zabrowski on drums and Nathan Pack on the bass. Thanks to all our listeners. Special thanks to our Patreon community. If you'd like to support the podcast directly, go to patreon.com slash Alex Skolnick. And you can also support the podcast just by sharing, leaving a review, and hitting subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Thanks once again to Peter Frampton and uh, Lisa Jenkins, his manager, for helping set this up. 
Another episode will be forthcoming in approximately two weeks. In the meantime, everybody get vaccinated if you can. Let's get through this and I will see you on the next episode. Take care and be safe. tell you about the April-May 2023 issue of Relics Magazine. Features a Dave Matthews Band cover story with additional articles and interviews with The National, Graham Nash, Wayne Shorter, ALO, Ivan Neville, our friend Eric Krasno and Stanton Moore, Marty Stewart, and much more. Check out the latest version of Relics and subscribe now at relics.com slash DMB. Thanks, Relics. Hi, I'm Emma. And I'm Joe. And, and we're, we're the, the Professional, professional Book, book Nerds. Nerds. Two Mondays a month, we interview authors and talk about their upcoming books, what drives them, and their go-to order at the cafe. On Thursdays, we share recommendations and dive into topics readers face, like how do I actually read the books on my to be read list? You can find the Professional Book Nerds podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Want to learn more about us? Our website is professionalbooknerds.com, and you can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at ProBookNerds. We hope you'll come and listen, and as always, happy happy reading. reading!